Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Have you ever wanted to walk up to a politician and give them a piece of your mind? Have you ever had questions you'd like to ask candidates that are running for political office? And what about third-party candidates? Have you ever wanted to pick their brains? Well, I know my answer to all these questions is a resounding yes. So today we're going to start the show with a story contributed by the Kentucky Academy of Science, the National Science Policy Network, Kentucky March for Science, and five other science organizations here in Kentucky. This coalition sent a questionnaire on science policy topics to all of the candidates for the federal House and Senate, as well as the Kentucky Assembly and Kentucky Senate seats. This coalition would like you to know how to access the results from this questionnaire. First, we'll hear from Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. She'll introduce some of the other folks in the coalition who will then tell you about the questionnaire. Take it away, Amanda. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller. I'm here from the Kentucky Academy of Science, and I'm with you today from a team of collaborators that worked with the Kentucky Academy of Science on an initiative to survey Kentucky candidates for public office and find out what they think about science and science policy. We have several different organizations who collaborate on this initiative. We have several folks here today with me to talk about it. And I'm gonna tell you some of the organizations that we are representing. We have Adria Schwarber here from the National Science Policy Network. We have Dan Phelps from the Kentucky Paleontological Society. We have Trent Garrison, who's an organizer from the March for Science Lexington. We have Eleanor Johnson and Beth Oates from the Kentucky Advocates for Science Policy and Research. It's an organization at the University of Kentucky. And along with all those organizations, we also had, as collaborators on this initiative, the Kentucky Psychological Association and the Central and Western Kentucky Citizens Climate Lobby. So this was a broad coalition of groups who are all interested in finding out what our candidates think about science and in letting you, the voters, know what they think. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Glad to be here. Very glad to have you all with us. Um, I want to mention, too, at the top, if folks want to read people's responses to the survey, they are posted at our website, which is kyscience.org. There's a link right on the front page where you can go and read all the responses. I want to start, Trent, by asking you to tell us a little bit about the history of this initiative, where the idea came from. All right. Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm I'm glad this is happening again. Again, I'm I'm Trent Garrison. I'm president-elect of KAS. And I'll just explain how this initiative got started. So back in 2018 in the midterm elections, I was teaching a class on science policy. And I had eight wonderful students in that class. And we decided to do kind of an independent research project. And that independent research project was done in conjunction with Kentucky Academy of Science. And what we did was we decided to survey everybody who was running 
that we could find uh, information for in 2018 that was done through my science class collaboration in, in KAS. At that time, I believe we had 17 responses out of around 267-ish, if I've got my numbers correct, which is a response rate of 6.4%. And we wanted to do that again, so we were approached by the National Science Policy Network. Now, Adria is on the call here. You'll hear from her in just a second. And we wanted to replicate that survey and perhaps you know, try to do a better job of it this time as far as outreach and getting the message out there and soliciting responses. So we did, thanks to all of our partners that Amanda mentioned earlier. So we increased that rate to 12% this time. So that's my introduction, and I think Adria may talk a little bit more about that. Thanks, Trent. Yeah, as Trent mentioned, my name's Adria, and I'm a member of the National Science Policy Network, which is a nonprofit that represents early career science policy and advocacy groups distributed across the United States. The National Science Policy Network teamed up this year with Science Debate, which is another nonpartisan organization in order to put together these questionnaires across different states, and Kentucky is one of them, the one we're working with now. And you may have heard more about Science Debate already on Bench Talk, but they've actually been collecting nonpartisan responses from candidates since 2008. And part of this initiative comes from not only just trying to inform the voters about important science policy topics, but also to try to get science students to be more civic-minded and actually participate more readily in, in voting. Um, a 2019 study from the Institute for Democracy in Higher Education, for example, found that only 34% of STEM students actually participated in the 2018 election. And so part of this initiative is also to try to gain interest in voting among science students. Thank you, Adria. It's so great to know that there are national organizations supporting local groups like ours who are interested in dipping their toe into science policy and really appreciate the support from the national level and also just appreciate that there are young professionals who really have their eye on science policy. So through this initiative, I'm very happy that I got to meet two of those young professionals engaging in science policy work. Eleanor Johnson is one of them. And Eleanor, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about when we say science policy, what do we mean? What you know, to average people, they don't really think about this a lot. What are the topics that we ask people about and how did we pick those topics? Hi, Amanda. Thank you for that question. Science policy is actually a very broad topic. A lot of times people think it's going to be more narrow than it actually is. As you mentioned at the top, we all come from different science organizations that all have different focuses and yet we all still are able to say we work on science policy. So for the purposes of the questionnaire we sent out, we decided to focus on just a select few topics. Uh, obviously, public health is very important right now, especially with COVID going on, and it has shown some disparities in health concerns. Uh, we also focused on science education because obviously education is important and we need to make sure that the future population is science literate. We also focused on environmental health and safety. Specifically, I know we asked about how to ensure clean water and air in biodiversity. All of these are very important and can easily affect the health of people living in the area. We also discuss how changes in energy and then its effects on the environment as well. So talking about things like non-renewable resources. 
And then we also talked about the scientific integrity and support of research culture and funding research. And finally, also research security and international student issues, which has been a topic in federal news recently. Great. Thank you, Eleanor, for going over those questions. They are really important things in Kentucky. And I was glad to see that uh, our candidates really are paying attention to these topics and took the time to respond about their views on things. So Beth, I want to start with you and maybe we can highlight some of the things that we saw in people's responses. I should mention that this initiative is a nonpartisan initiative and we are not endorsing any of these candidates. We're not endorsing any particular legislation in the process. This is an educational informative initiative. So given that, what are some things, Beth, that you saw coming up in people's responses? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing is that support for science is bipartisan and the responses that we got show just that. A lot of what we were seeing in the responses are the importance of STEM education at a young K through 12 level, as that's really where they start the foundation of finding innovation and the excitement for science to build off of that. And with the responses that we received, a lot of it is trying to get students more interested in STEM, as well as have it more accessible to them. Another thing that will continuously pop up for probably the remainder of the year is the response to COVID. And with that, most of the responses do talk about the importance of being prepared for the next pandemic and the importance of that pandemics will happen again in the future. And we never want to be caught off guard with limited PPE that we were previously. And so many of the responses focus on how to go about making sure that we have the most prepared responses to any type of pandemic or even local outbreaks of diseases. And that's just a few to, to focus on, at least that I found of importance. Absolutely. I'm glad that you saw that. I'm glad that a lot of people are really, I mean, it's, it's an issue that's hard to ignore right now. <laughs> so we definitely are glad to see a lot of people paying attention to that. Dan Phelps. You are no stranger to holding our government accountable and for advocating for science education and some of the other issues that are touched on in this survey. What are some things that stood out to you? Well, of course, um, my contribution was seeing that we had quite an emphasis on science education and support for science education. We had problem with the implementation, or at least giving, getting the legislature to accept the idea of implementing the next generation science standards. So I wanted to make sure that many of the questions, and of course I'm not the only one that advocated this by any means, but emphasized that uh, the teaching of, of, of evolution and climate change would be included in any sort of discussion on education. This is a state, of course, that has uh, financial support for the Ark Encounter Park up in Grant County. So this was a big concern to me. I think climate change, of course, is really the biggest threat to our civilization going in spite of the short-term problem with the COVID virus. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure those subjects were covered. And I guess that was sort of my contribution to this was um, helping emphasize those two subjects. 
And that's a great point. We had in this broad coalition of folks who put the questionnaires together. And so we really did get a lot of perspectives from our allies around the state to put the questions to the candidates. And we're very thankful for all the different expertise that people brought into that process. Frank Garrison, you are a man with many hats. I introduced you earlier as one of the organizers of the March for Science in Lexington, but I'm glad you also mentioned that you are an officer with the Kentucky Academy of Science and wear other hats as well. And so you're also a regular observer of public affairs in Kentucky, and you're a scientist by background. And I know it's really important to you that our public officials are using good science and decision making. So what did you see in the responses as you read through them? Yeah, thanks for that. Kentucky Academy of Science has essentially what's kind of like a legislative liaison type position. We used to call it education and advocacy. And people in that group follow the policy that's going on in Frankfurt and uh, nationwide, uh, anything that impacts Kentucky. So in, in doing that and following the policies over the last few years, it's been really interesting talking to, watching, and getting to know our General Assembly members and just our legislators in general who have something to do with science policy one way or the other. But getting to your question, I think probably Beth covered the COVID. She, she said basically what I wanted to say, <laughs> so I won't, I won't uh, go back into that. She did a really good job of it. And the healthcare question related to COVID, I think a lot of people mention access to, to healthcare is important. There were a number of participants who noted the importance of renewable energy jobs and um, science education, and, and quite a few people mentioned you know, the importance of us taking climate change seriously. Those are some of the main things that I noticed. Side note, we did have more participation across the aisle this time. In our first survey in 2018, it was mostly one-sided. This time we had a few more participants. So I was glad to see that those issues are basically being taken seriously by everyone, at least in this survey. So those are just some broad topics that I saw. If folks want to look at it in more detail, you can spend quite a bit of time on our website. Just go to the Kentucky Academy of Science homepage and under recent news, it'll be there, a link to this survey. But I, I believe we had 27 responses this time, and it was all over the place as far as state Senate answers, state House answers, congressional answers, and so forth. So folks can go there and get into it in, in more detail if they want. Absolutely. Thanks, Trent. Yeah, the link again is kyscience.org. We do want to point people there to find out if your candidate for public office responded, and if you can find out more about what they think about science policy. Eleanor, I want to give you another chance to weigh in. Do you have anything that you noticed in people's responses or policy things that jumped out at you? Yes. One thing I noticed, a lot of people were very supportive of the idea of improving internet access in Kentucky. This is especially important right now as so many schools are thinking about going virtual or are virtual. And the other big area I wanted to cover was how many people were very supportive of funding research and helping to have more innovative science occurring here in Kentucky, which would not only benefit our communities, but also our country. Yeah, thanks for making that point. I also was really pleased to see um, how many people who responded are, you know, expressing strong support for funding for higher education, funding for scientific research. You know, budgets are tight. We know we have a lot of problems with our budget, but investing in education 
and investing in science is such a great investment for the future. So we're, you know, really emphasizing that as an organization always that it is an investment and we appreciate that candidates are also seeing that. One thing that I really noticed as I was reading through them, I saw some people really with some specific and interesting policy proposals, but I also just saw a lot of people saying I'm generally supportive of X, Y, or Z and want to learn more about it. There are folks who are willingly admitting they may be interested in topics and generally supportive of something, but don't necessarily have a specific policy proposal in mind. And that to me really reinforces the importance of citizens being involved in the process after you vote and being in touch with legislators, helping share information, helping share sometimes ideas for solutions to problems. It really is an incumbent upon scientists and citizens to be in touch with their legislators, be in touch with folks so that public policy can use the best science in, in policymaking. I agree, Amanda. And I think, you know, this sort of thing that we're doing here, lots of other groups across the state and nation are doing things of this nature as well. But I think it's really important and perhaps even in a citizens to do some research on what um, not only your national officials, but what your local officials think about certain subject for we vote in a very short period of time. Yep. So I'm going to wrap it up there. I want to just encourage everybody to definitely vote. You have several different ways of how to do that this year. Hopefully everybody's finding a way that works for them. And read out those candidate answers at kyscience.org. Do the research, find out about the people you're voting for, and stay involved in the process. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. And speaking of the Kentucky Academy of Science... Here's a little information about their annual meeting that's going to be held in November of 2020. It's an online conference this year, making it possibly the most accessible KAS annual meeting ever. Here is Trent Garrison, president-elect of KAS, and Amanda Fuller, the executive director. All right, we just wanted to give you a quick reminder that our annual meeting is coming up on November 6th and November 7th. And our keynote speaker on November 6th is going to be Dr. Stephen Stack. Uh, our keynote on Saturday is going to be November 7th, is going to be Dr. Chris Atchison. And the Kentucky Academy of Science is delighted to have those two great keynote speakers this year. Of course, we'll have lots of scientific presentations uploaded to our website. So folks who are interested in seeing what your fellow scientists are working on can find those at our website at kyscience.org starting on November 1st. But if you're interested in hearing from Dr. Stack about COVID and science policy, we're very delighted to have him with us on Friday. And Chris Atchison is a geology professor in Cincinnati who has done a lot with inclusive education and really welcoming everyone into the science classroom and into the science field who um, have all different abilities and walks of life. So we're very excited to hear from both of them during our annual meeting and hope you'll join us. It's kyscience.org for more information. And it will be all be online. Neat. Now let's hear from John Dixon with some useful information taken from the scientific literature on how to deal with science deniers. Take it away, John. Hi, John Dixon here. Today, I would like to share with you some psychology and science education journals, as well as a few articles which will be helpful with the upcoming conversation surrounding different aspects of the COVID-19 crisis. 
On this show, we've already had many great pieces. David Robinson spoke about sequencing the genome back in February. We have had Wendy Sharp, a local registered nurse, who advised us on how to stay safe, as well as Dave Lott to discuss some of the conspiracy theories around COVID. Scott Miller gave us a very impassioned argument about maintaining the CO2 decline that we have seen with the COVID crisis. And leading into the topic I would like to talk about today, Dave Robinson and Ashley Best did a very thorough discussion on creating a gene-based vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus causing the COVID-19 crisis. There's been a lot of media coverage recently regarding the COVID-19 crisis, and there are commonplace arguments on the internet regarding face coverings and their effectiveness. Unfortunately, we've also seen media coverage given to persons who don't agree with scientific consensus regarding the dangers of the novel coronavirus. Given the amount of falsifiable misinformation that is being spread widely regarding the COVID-19 crisis, when we pair in the addition of an already vocal anti-vaccination community, there's a great need for the scientific community to prepare for this debate ahead of time. So I would like to begin by sharing a few psychology journals and then some opinion pieces which I view to be well-formed as well as some of my own experiences in science education. In order to prepare for a discussion in which we will be using science-based and evidence-driven facts to try and communicate, it's helpful to understand why conspiracy theorists have the beliefs that they do. In a 2017 publication by Karen Douglas et al. titled The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories, the psychological factors behind someone's adoption of a conspiracy theory are laid out in that they can be epistemic, where the believer of a conspiracy theory might go so far as to believe that the overwhelming evidence of the scientific community itself is a conspiracy theory, which can lead to existential motives for believing in a conspiracy theory, which will give the person a feeling of safety. There's been a correlation found between people having high anxiety levels or feeling powerless upon their time of adopting a conspiracy theory as well as social motives where conspiracy theorists will find a sense of community within a group of fellow believers. In an investigative opinion piece, the journalist Alex Moshakis actually went to a Flat Earth convention and noticed many of these things in person. Many members of the group of Flat Earthers referred to their moment of realization as an awakening. Several members of the group spoke openly about having a traumatic incident in their life shortly before they began to become open-minded towards the flat earth ideas. An article by Christina Peter and Thomas Koch in 2015 in the Journal of Science Communication discusses when debunking scientific myths fails. It also takes into account the backfire effect in the context of journalistic coverage and immediate judgments as a prevention strategy. It considers how scientific information when reported by journalists often present common myths and then refute those with science facts. However, this way of correcting misinformation is ineffective and causes people to misremember what is true. The backfire effect caused by this kind of journalism is very similar to the type of misleading journalism that we see with climate change. 
When viewers see one person on each side of the debate regarding climate change on their screen, it becomes harder to realize that the vast overwhelming majority of scientists agree that climate change is man-made and a current threat. In a brilliant opinion piece, Elfie Scott analyzed how science communication has lost its sense of empathy. It's easy to see why this would happen. It can be very frustrating to debate something as clearly false as the Flat Earth Society. It's equally frustrating to have the true consensus misrepresented during a debate. As any of us who have had to answer the same question too many times can attest, it's also frustrating to have to refute dangerous and false claims time and time again. This is where I would like to offer some of my own personal suggestions. First, please try to refrain from arguing online. Not only is it ineffective for several reasons, but the most incendiary posts are actually rewarded by the algorithm. When comment feuds start, when there are anger notifications, these things will all cause the public visibility of the post to become even higher. In my own personal experience as an educator, when having the opportunity to have discourse with someone whose own personal conclusions don't match those of the scientific consensus, I would have to adopt the Socratic method of debate. In order for this to be effective, I had to develop a certain mindset around discourse that scientists tend to have about reality. In arguing and debating, I love to find out when I'm wrong, and I try to know where my ignorance lies. I take great joy in trying to learn new things, and I try to be curious and open at all times. Now when I'm teaching younger children, it's very easy to remember these mindsets, but when I'm debating with an adult, the very first step is to take a deep breath. After that, I can calmly and honestly ask the person to explain why they feel the way that they do about a topic. It's very important to ask follow-up questions and find a general point where the dissonance between your arguments begins. If you discuss with an anti-vaccination person openly and honestly and ask questions, you will usually come to a point where the information is volunteered that perhaps a person distrusts pharmaceutical companies. The person may share that they had a first or second-hand experience of witnessing a negative reaction after the administration of a vaccine. So at this point, it might become clear that there's a misinterpretation of cause and effect, at which point I tend to openly and honestly ask what the other circumstances might have been. In the best case scenario, you might be able to have someone change their mind, or at least they might be open to exploring new information. Often, without openness, honesty, and compassion in a debate, the other person will have their anchor bias entrenched even further, which can close the door to possible future discussions. I would just like to ask that while the researchers work tirelessly on creating a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, then hopefully we can work tirelessly on creating constructive dialogue. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.